It's time once again for another episode of All That's Jazz, the podcast that explores everything in the world of jazz. And here now is your host, Alan Scott. Hello and welcome to another episode of All That's Jazz. Today, our guest is a very interesting man who is a alto and soprano sax player. He's quite a proficient flute player as well, and it is a joy to have him here to speak with us today. He is a man who is not only accomplished as a band leader, but as a sideman and a performer with some of the greatest jazz masters that you can think of. He's played with them, performed with them, and recorded with them. And we're going to learn more about our guest today, who is Eric Person. Eric, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. So it's truly a pleasure here having you for this episode. And I'd like to start out with a little bit about your background. It's been said that you came into the world as a prodigy in this world of music. Do you want to explain that for me? (laughs) Okay, well, my father, Thomas Person, he was a saxophonist, and uh, he started me off playing saxophone. I learned the basics with him at age seven. Actually, he told me I came to him and um, said to him, I'm ready. And so I've always likened music as a calling for myself. He set me on the journey, the beginning of a journey in music for me. You know, I um, learned the basics with him, and, and I started taking lessons with other instructors early and just made my way kind of step by step, you know, through uh, uh, grade school, junior high and high school and some celebrated programs in St. Louis, Missouri and St. Louis County. I basically tried to get my hands or my my talent into any kind of musical situation I could. I was in a jazz band and I played from age like 15 to 19 uh, in St. Louis, I played every Saturday, you know, just playing jazz, jazz standards and everything. And um, that was with the James Matthews Quartet in St. Louis. And also was in, was in, a, in a couple of funk bands. And then in high school, at, at Normandy High School, I was in uh, the marching band, the top jazz band, the Norsemen. I was in the symphonic band. I did <laughs> I did solo recitals and jazz competitions. So I just tried to really immerse myself and develop my talent. And at some point, I just had an inner urge to uh, venture off and leave St. Louis and move to New York. So that's where I was looking. I had my eye on developing my talent on the stages in New York and, and around the world. Well, you've played an awful lot, and I used the word prodigy earlier only because you were playing saxophone by time you were seven. By time you're in the fifth grade, you're already doing your first orchestral piece, and, and then it just went on from there. And I, I know, as you said, you've played some funk, you've played all kinds of things, you've even been in high school uh, band. Where did the jazz start to fit into the picture for you? Oh, that actually started very early because uh, my father, again, he played tenor saxophone. He used to uh, play with the along with the records that he had. And so I started doing that and I would 
play along with Art Blakey Records, Sonny Stiff Records, Coltrane Records, you know, just <laughs> learning tunes and learning the blues, learning uh, how to play in key. And when I took my first solo in, in the eighth grade, the big band, I was basically already knowing what to do and what to play, you know. It goes back to just hearing all the time this music, Coltrane, Jackie McLean, Sonny Stitt, Miles Davis in the house, usually on Sundays. So I, it was actually just in my blood, you know, music was in my blood. It's interesting because I think for a lot of us, it starts either with our parents or friends or just something in your background to where that music starts to infuse itself inside of you and it gets in your heart and your soul and it doesn't go away. And I think that's the infectious and beautiful thing about jazz more than I think any other music. I don't know if that's a bad characterization or not, but I think jazz has that kind of effect over any other genre. I, I agree. It's a great thing that we come to the music by way of our parents and everything, but does that mean if you don't have parents that are into this music, then you won't get that, you won't get jazz? And and, and unfortunately, that is the case. Um, a lot of people don't hear jazz. They don't hear it on the radio. They don't hear it on, they don't hear it on TV. They don't see the artists. So it's, it's, it's very much a mysterious thing. It's very distant. It's very far away from their daily lives. And that's unfortunate because... You know, jazz was a popular music at one time. And, and obviously when rock and roll came in, it just kind of, our audience was whittled away. Yes, we are definitely blessed to have our folks uh, to uh, give us this music. I just wish the, the average person out here could hear it more because I believe they would love it too. I, w I agree because if uh, you didn't have that jazz uh, somewhere in your history, then you may not get there ever because you get sidetracked by by the rock, maybe by yeah. country music, maybe by funk. Not that funk is a bad thing uh, necessarily, mm -hmm. and it's almost a uh, close cousin of jazz in some ways. Mm -hmm. But to have that music presented to you and also in, in agreement with you, Eric, is that it's just unfortunate that more and more people aren't listening to jazz and take a moment. It's not a difficult music. A lot of people seem to think that it is or it's complicated, maybe because they heard free jazz and they didn't quite understand it. But it's not all like that. Uh, it, it's a very easy, listenable type of music and very friendly, user-friendly, if you will. And it doesn't necessarily need to inspire you to become a musician, but it can inspire you to continue to want more in your life. I agree. I mean, uh, I believe Winton has had a, a big effect on uh, education and bringing jazz to uh, younger kids. And that helps. I think in the end, if, if it's like a flame, you know, a flame uh, that's going to resonate in certain uh individuals and others it might not catch but if they're at least given this music early you know they hear it it's not mysterious if they hear some Louis Armstrong they hear some Betty I was gonna say Billy Billy Holiday if they hear you know Charlie Parker and many others early then they can say even when they get older I'm on my first date with this girl you know I want to I want to impress her maybe I go to this jazz club I, I kind of remember it from when I was a kid, if you don't have that kind of connection, you can never say that to yourself, you know, 
So it's like, if you just, if we keep getting the music out, getting it further, getting it in all kinds of places, it's going to, it's going to attach itself to more people. If we don't do that, then it's just going to be a mysterious thing. And then you, you'll hear those kind of uh, criticism about, about jazz. Oh, that's, that's my father's music or that's, mm-hmm. that's old folks music, you know, and that's, it's, that's far from the case. So yeah, we just have to keep proselytizing, as I say. <laughs> Absolutely. So who was it then uh, that preached to you? Who was your mentor or your influencer to keep you on this path in the right direction? That's a good question. Um, I basically have been a self-starter my whole life. I mean, when I basically look back at my uh, learnings in music, a lot of things I got into, it was just that I came up with an idea and I pursued it and nobody else fueled it. Because if I just waited on somebody else to say, hey, man, you should do this, then I might have not ever gotten to it. Like uh, when I was in high school, I got the idea of, of just developing my technique better and, and my classical uh, inter- interpretation better. So I, I, I enrolled in um, the, the conservatory of uh, music in St. Louis. And another thing I did, I was as I've developed as a soloist, I wanted to learn music theory more and jazz theory. So I wound up going to Washington U. It was a free education course or whatever that was happening on Saturday. So I just went there. This wasn't somebody, uh, I mean, no one told me to do it. It was just something I did myself. So I just found my way into things that I just thought was going to benefit me and I thought I would like. Even after New York, well, the New York scene has changed a lot. But <laughs> again, you know, it's just you, you have to have that flame inside you that's burning to learn, burning to get your talent out there. And that's something I've, I've, I had always wanted to do. And so I was pretty fortunate to wind up in good company. And and then the people who weren't good company, I just didn't let it discourage me. I just tried to find a way to move on. So through your years of education and you started developing and honing your skills, not only as a musician, but uh, maybe a composer uh, and then the eventual arranger that you are as well. Where is it that the jazz took a, a firm grasp or hold of you and, and you moved on to what city first? Was it New York? Is that where you you went to the big city right away and then it continued from there? Or was there an in-between city possibly? No, I went from uh, St. Louis, Missouri to uh, New York when I was age 19. What drew you to New York? <laughs> All these records I used to have that my father uh, I mentioned my father's name a lot in this interview, which I don't mind, but he had a lot of records, like I mentioned earlier, but I used to read the liner notes and a lot of subsequent records I bought was talking about the New York scene, different clubs here. And, you know, there's famous records that were recorded in clubs like, you know, Birdland and, and the Village Vanguard. And that just really kind of between the liner notes and pictures and also I was I think a couple of years before I went to New York I was getting a a paper called the Jazz Spotlight it had the whole New York scene so I was seeing articles that was talking about hey Woody Shaw is over here playing and Charlie Rouse is over here playing and and that just really got me excited to want to be a part of that you know I I just love the music so much and I just wanted to fulfill more of my talent and I knew I couldn't do that in St. Louis so I just made it 
made an effort to get to, to New York after I graduated from high school. I would say my first real opportunity after I came to New York came about a year and a half after I got to New York, and that was Chico Hamilton, the uh, jazz drummer who's pretty legendary. He worked with you know, Billie Holiday and Lester Young and had a lot of his own records. And uh, Eric Dolphy got his start with him, so it's kind of ironic. And then, um, you know, I, I also started working with a, another guy who uh, I don't know if you're familiar with. His name is Ronald Shannon Jackson. He was a pioneering kind of avant kind of jazz rock drummer. And I did my first recording with him and I got I, I toured Europe first with him also. But Chico Hamilton gave me my first uh, first break, really. And it, and it came in in a, in a strange way, if I could tell it real quick. Please. Yeah, I was uh, in uh, living in Brooklyn and I was invited to Oliver Lake's house and saxophonist. He's also from St. Louis. And um, he was having a party while I was there. I met a saxophonist named uh, Marty Ehrlich, who's also from St. Louis. But I didn't know him to that uh, party. And uh, so I was talking to him and he said, yeah, you know, I'm thinking about leaving uh, Chico Hamilton's band. He said, uh he said, you want the gig? <laughs> and uh, I was like, uh, yeah. <laughs> and I didn't know that's how it worked, you know. And, and that's not the only way it works and how to get a, a gig. But he said he would give Chico my number. And Chico called me a couple of days later. And then I went over his house, auditioned for him. He liked what I was doing. And I was in the band. And next next thing I knew, I was playing at a, a, a restaurant out in Long Island with him. And a few months later, we were touring and did some work down in Florida. But I worked off and on with Chico for like 15 years, I think. And then later in the picture, uh, you were associated with uh, Dave Holland, the bassist. Mm -hmm. That that actually came um, in 1993. I was actually recording with somebody down in the village, and I ran into a bass player, and he was telling me that Steve Coleman was leaving Dave's band, and I asked him for Dave's number, so he said he would get the number for me. And I called Dave Holland up and um, I said, uh, I heard that um, I just wanted to introduce myself. And I heard that Steve was leaving the band. I think you like my talent. <laughs> so um, he said, OK, maybe we could get together and do some playing. I said, that would be great. And, and then he said he was going to call me. No, he said next week would be good. And so he was going to call me and let me know. And a week came and he didn't call. So I called him up and I said, hey, this is Eric Person again. He said, oh, okay, you know, uh, sorry I didn't call you. It's been kind of busy. I said, oh, no problem. He said, okay, I think next week is going to work for me. He's like, okay. I said, okay. And um, then he, uh, another week went by. He didn't con- contact me. So I, I called him again. He said, oh, man, I'm really sorry. You know, it's, 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 it's been tough, you know, getting down to the city. And, you know, so let, let's try next week. And so... Once again, that week came and went and uh, he did not contact me. So I, at, at that point, I was kind of like, OK, I think he's just playing with me. You know, uh, I, I can't I can't keep doing this. So I, I stopped calling him. But then strangely, um, like out of the blue, like six months later, he uh, called me and said, hey, you know, I'd like to get together with you. Can I stop by your place? And so he did. And we went through a number of his tunes. He liked what I was doing and said he was going to send the music a week later, which he did. And um, the rest is history. We actually uh, rehearsed 
with the quartet for like about two or three months, like at least one time each month before we did our first gig in uh, January of 1994. So it was three years with his group and um, we did that great record called uh, Dream of the Elders. What was your instrument of choice? Was it alto or uh, soprano sax? Uh, you know, uh, alto is my main instrument. If I have a gig and I play both instruments, I'm probably going to play more alto. But, you know, I've always had an affinity for the soprano saxophone. So um, soprano and alto was the instruments I played with him mainly. I did do a little flute here and there. And I also played sopranino, which is uh, E-flat soprano saxophone. You are extremely proficient on all three of those, the the alto, the soprano, and the flute. I, I listen to your recordings, and I will tell you that it's hard to say one's better than the other, at least from my listening ears. Uh, wh- where did flute come into play for you? Because you, you really are a master at it, I, I, I would say. It's, it's a tough instrument. Actually, uh, the great saxophonist uh, Eddie Harris said he didn't even think flute was a double because it's, it, it's such a difficult instrument. It's hard to put it away, come back and feel like you, you know, you're really into the instrument. So you really have to stay on it. Actually, I came by, by way of the flute uh, as a doubling instrument in, in the big band in, in high school. But over the years, I started saying I didn't want to just be one of those guys that just gets caught, you know, pointed at to play flute and then he sounds terrible. So I, I tried to uh, work on it and practice on it and like what I wanted to say on it, you know, because some, some, you know how it is with music. It's like you can play instrument and uh, if you want to improvise on it, you have to develop a sound. You have to develop a, an idea of how you want to sound and, and, the, and the proper ideas that kind of work on that instrument, you know, because like if you play saxophone, some things that you play on saxophone don't really work as good on, on flute. So you kind of have to dig into it a little bit. Just a little fun question then for you. So you play alto, you play soprano, and you also play the flute. And what if uh, someone were to come up to you tomorrow and say, Eric, you play incredibly well all three of them but from now on you can only play one what's it going to be <laughs> uh, oh boy that that's a good question i mean i would have to say i would i would pick my alto because i think it has the most versatility you know i'm already proficient at it and um i still love the instrument and i can play traditionally on it and also progressively on it in a way that feel like it, it feels right. Yeah. So I would say alto. I think there's probably a good reason behind that because in the ears of others, uh, including some of the masters of jazz that you've played with uh, or recorded with, you obviously made an impression because uh, you have associated yourself with people like uh, McCoy Tyner, uh, Dave Holland, who you've already mentioned, Donald Byrd. And you were also, uh, for a short period of time, with the World Saxophone Quartet. Yeah, I mean, it was a lot of that stuff actually happened um, around the same time. I, I joined Dave Holland's band at the end of 93, and I started recording with uh, World Saxophone Quartet at the end of uh, 83 and started touring with them that same time. So, yeah, it was a great learning experience working with those guys. You know, I did one record with them. Would have been nice to get another one in, in but um, yeah. 
Mm-hmm. What was it like playing with them? It must have been a great experience, not only as a player or a musician, but even for yourself on one of the recordings, I think it was uh, moving right along. You yes. you were also responsible for two of the compositions on, on that album. I mean, it, it was a lot of that came from uh, Hammy Blewett in that um, he said, you know, I, I want you to be a come on in and, and finish this record with us and um, contribute to a couple of tunes. I mean, he didn't have to say that. I mean, there's a guy who's been around. I'm quite sure he had other tunes of his own. But yeah, I mean, I, I actually learned a lot from those those guys. I came in at a particular time in, in that, that group's history. I was in like the fourth chair, which which was kind of uh, a rotating chair. And I at least, at least got a couple of years out of working with them. And um, it definitely gave me something, some more to think about in terms of mastering my, my own instrument. You know, a lot of guys don't get that kind of experience, you know, uh, to be able to work with those level of players and, um, you know, you take what you can from it and, and um, keep moving right along. Well, besides having that influence in your life, you, you also uh, played around in the uh, funk arena. You were with uh, Kelvin Bell's band and, and uh, did a recording, uh, Refunkination. Yeah, I worked with uh, Kelvin um, like uh, four years and we, we did a lot of touring in Europe. That, that came after... Um, the stint I was doing with Ronald Shannon Jackson's group and uh, my first stint with Chico Hamilton. And um, it was a good, it was a good experience. You know, I mean, I I value all the experiences I've had. Some are better than others, but I value them all because, or when I sit back and and look at the abundance of work that I've done over the years, it's, it's made me what I am. Well, if you look at your recordings, you, you, they're quite diverse. It's not just in one pigeonholed category and and you go through a a number of different approaches to the music and your recordings uh, as a leader are absolutely wonderful. You have uh, quite a few to your credit. And is there one of those in that list, uh, everything from Arrival, which I think was your first as a leader, yes, uh, down to uh, Duoscope, which I'd like to talk to you about in a second. But is there one of those uh, recordings that stand out for you as one you're most proud of? Yeah, I, uh, I actually have 10 as a, as a leader. The one for me, uh, I, I wasn't able to send you this one, uh, but it's called Rhythm Edge. And that one's I, I recorded in 2007. And that one featured my working band, and it was uh, my first CD since 1999. I had a record called uh, Extra Pressure, and so this was kind of like the sequel to that record. And I augmented it uh, with uh, a number of guest artists like Ingrid Jensen and Robin Eubanks. I'm proud of that record. You can find a lot of the cuts on YouTube, actually. And um, that one for me, I would say that's one of my favorite. When I just think about my whole discography, that's one of my favorites. 
Well, they're all very good. Uh, one of the others uh, that I thought was uh, exceptional was uh, Live at Big Sur. Tell us mm-hmm. a little about that one. That was done out in Big Sur. We did two performances. Well, I think it was a Saturday and Sunday. John Esposito is on piano. He's he's been a collaborator with me since like 1995. Matter of fact, um, I'm looking to uh, I'm going in the studio tomorrow to do some edits on a recording we just did a couple of years ago that I want to get out. Uh, if not my next CD, the next one after. But yeah, Kenny Davis, great bass player who's been with me off and on probably since 2000 or something like that. Mm-hmm. And Peter mm-hmm. O'Brien on drums, who we still uh, work together uh, here up in the Hudson Valley. So um, it was a great way to, uh, I I don't even remember if I, I knew we were going to record, but the guy who was there said, yeah, he could record it. And when I heard that the recording came out that well, I, I, I said, definitely, let's release this. It's great. Of the recordings that you have, would it be a fair assessment to say that if people really want to get a good taste of Eric Person, uh, that uh, they could pick up Reflections because it's kind of a best of, if you will? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's that's a, that's a great record, um, which contains some live tracks, a couple from um, even the Soul Note releases that I had, which were my first three releases as a leader. I have two cuts from each one of my soul note records on reflections and then it just kind of moves along I, I also I also put three live cuts which featured um again john esposito and uh, trumpeter dave douglas so um yeah i think people really like that record i mean it, it's it's sold a lot for me and, and if I have eight of my CDs laying out on a table for somebody to buy it at, at a performance very often they might pick that one because it's kind of easy best of collection you know well i think maybe one of the others they should give a a taste and a listen to is uh, duoscope uh, which mm-hmm. i found very very interesting uh, and your approach to it is very creative and very different from the perspective of it sounded like the two of you were giving your hearts and soul and, and the, the creativity was, was fast and hard at work it, because it's just you on sax and it's Shin Takahashi on the drums. So a yeah. sax player and a drummer on a whole album. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's uh, something I always wanted to do, um, record a, a duo record because you know, I was inspired by Coltrane doing Interstellar Space. But I didn't want to do that. You know, I mean, you can't keep 
doing the same thing that somebody else did, no matter how great it is. me and Shen, we we rehearsed a year on that and we went through different, well, I went through, I, I was kind of setting up the conceptual framework of it because I didn't want to do it, have any standards on it where people have like a preconceived, oh, he's just going to blow over the changes on the standard and whatever. And that that's kind of, that's going to be a little predictable. So I brought a few different tunes and then some tunes I brought and, and we didn't record. One I did with Chico Hamilton, I wanted to re- re-record and see how it worked out, but it didn't work out. I kind of made a balance of improvised tunes and these other tunes I brought in. So I, I really like how it turned out. You know, Shin's, Shin's a fantastic drummer. I, I would consider him the best drummer that's under my leadership of all the drummers I've had, actually. You know, he was he was a joy to work with, you know, and very creative, always had a good attitude and a lot of energy, and people seem to like him a lot, too, you know, his plan. Tell me about your large ensemble recording, Thoughts on God. Yeah, um, again, that's that, that was a record that came together in uh, 2012. I wrote the songs back in um, 1984 and 85. That was actually... Only two years after I came to New York and uh, I was working a lot with Ronald Shannon Jackson and I bought uh, quite a bit of recording gear and effects units, keyboard, drum machine and this and that. But these particular tunes came out of the idea that, you know, I, I always think about the creator. became an idea that I wanted to do these pieces in a large ensemble. So I, I, I basically elected not to record any of these songs in a quartet or quintet situation or whatever. And I just kind of waited and I would kind of pull out the music. I would look at the music. I would listen to the little demos that I did. I would listen to them, that is. 
they always struck me, you know, in my heart, my soul, you know, and uh, just kept waiting. I just kept waiting. And then when I saw a lot of uh, people crowdfunding, I started getting the idea. I bet you I can get the money through crowdfunding to get this thing recorded. It wound up happening. And we recorded in March of 2012 and, and started doing some live performing in, in the next in the following year. You know, so I, I kind of did what I wanted to up to this point with that that music. It actually made me a better large band writer. Those were the first times I wrote for a large ensemble that big. As the band kept playing live, I started uh, writing and arranging more and just kind of giving it to them. This is your way of giving back because it's it's your way of showing that you feel blessed for what you were given in the way of talent and the music that you've produced. Oh, yeah. I mean, and just life in general, you know, I think you have to be thankful for it all. I think you have to be thankful for the good and the bad, you know, the lessons. A lot of times we don't think, you know, certain things are lessons. Like if we're going through a struggle or we're struggling with certain things, certain people, certain environments, it's really just a lesson, you know, to try and only only God knows why you he's putting you through certain things. But I, I have a, actually a testament. I'm, I'm actually a testament to that in the sense that, um, well, I'll just I'll just say it. A number of years ago, I had a, a, a bike accident. I was I was involved in a hit and run accident and a guy hit me from behind and left me on the road basically to die. You know, I was fortunate that some people saw the saw the incident and actually the p- people who were in front of the accident lady was a nurse you know what's the chance right her and her boyfriend they uh, called the police i'm ambulance and they they were with me till uh, they came the guy hit me with such force that i actually knocked off his side view mirror and they used that to find him and so they caught him shortly thereafter he did go to jail for some time for not long enough. <laughs> but I mean, you know, the thing is, I never looked at it like, um, why me? I kind of looked at it like I'm thankful that I'm alive. I'm thankful that I have my faculties. I didn't lose anything. I didn't break anything. And I, I used it to motivate me. And uh, I went back to school, actually. I went back to, I went to Empire State College, got my bachelor's degree in music. And all that kind of stemmed from that. And I actually look at that accident as like a dividing point in my existence, you know, I'm like, I became different and better. I, I've, I've, I've actually am committed to leaving some of the things that I might look at as negatives, <laughs> you know, that, and that might've been a part of what I did. So, you know, I just try to use it to make myself better. Well, I think it shows that you're not only a man of music, but a man of character and strength and courage and commitment. I, I, I can't let this go by not asking this question. There's a guy named Houston Person, mm-hmm. and you played together one time, and you did a gig called Person to Person. Tell us about that. Well, that, that that's my uh, that's my cousin, though. <laughs> we actually been in the studio, and we've only done three performances together. And we were supposed to do something uh, same year I had my accident, 2017. Well, we played at Dizzy's for a couple of nights and then we were supposed to play for Jazzmobile and that, that performance got rained out. But uh, we were supposed to do something again this year. And because of COVID, it looks like it's not going to happen. But um, we, we've been collaborating and I, I actually learn a lot from Houston, you know, not only talking 
about the business. You know, he's thoroughly knowledgeable about the business. If I'd have stayed more closely in contact with him many years ago, I, I got I could I could have called him up. Hey, hey, Houston, what do you think it is? And he has a very straight ahead approach about doing and not doing certain things. So I'm always checking in on him, you know, because Houston's going to be 80, yeah, 86 this year. He's going to be 86 years this this, this year. And um, we did record something in 2018, and that's going to be on my next CD release. And uh, it's, it's going to be called Blue Vision. It's great. Great story. Uh, I, I, I wished uh, I could have been at Dizzy's that night. I think Dizzy's is, is a great place. It's fantastic. And I think it's a privilege to play a club like that. Because oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, that's, I would say that's my favorite place to play now. I used to play the Blue Note a lot in New York City. Uh, I actually played there every year for 20 years. And um, Dizzy's for me is... You know, just the backdrop alone, the you know, New York City skyline, the traffic, it's, it's, it's nice. It's very nice. Great atmosphere there. It is indeed. So what other kinds of things in the future, Eric, can people look forward to from you? Well, I mean, definitely more music. I After Duoscope, I decided to slow down my, my pace a little bit with, with releases. And, and what I mean by that is, is I was just going to be picking things a little more carefully. And I was going to re-release some things. Like I have a couple of co-produced projects that I'm going to really release under my name. And then I have basically four CDs worth of music that I want to get out within the next probably two years. Uh, one of them being the Blue Vision I mentioned earlier with Houston. So... I think a lot of music within the next couple of years is co- going to be uh, coming out, and I hope to promote it well. Uh, hopefully, come to a city near you. There you go. I hope so. Let's let's hope we get a lot of jazz musicians in a city near us and on a stage and someplace we could all hear and enjoy you. Oh yeah, that that'd be my pleasure, Eric. Uh, last thing, uh, how could people learn more about you? Okay, yeah. Uh, basically, you can go to my website, which is Eric. Person.com. That's E-R-I-C-P-E-R-S-O-N.com. I also have a, a Facebook fan page. You can find me there. I'm also on Twitter. Just look up my name, Instagram. Once um, we get back rolling, I'm actually getting, getting a new website. It's going to have much more information, more stuff relating to my past, present, and future. Well, Eric, thank you for allowing us the time to learn a little bit more about you and your music, and we wish you all the best for a healthy and prosperous future. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of All That's Jazz, featuring jazz saxophonist Eric Person. Our thanks to Ben Sidron for our theme song, Mr. P's Shuffle. Join us for our next episode of All That's Jazz. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a five-star rating on the app you used to listen to us. We are available on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and every major listening app. Also Facebook and online at allthatsjazz.net.